Hello, Trumpcast. Get ready. It's going to be one hell of a week. Welcome back. The warning signs are piling up that Russia is working to sabotage our elections again. You don't know who broke in to DNC. Mark my words, America will not tolerate this meddling. Russia opened the playbook for the rest of the world to copy. This is super cheap. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, 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 but I don't... Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who thinks California wants wildfires, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. That's right. The president has been tweeting about this for the past couple of days. He says Governor Jerry Brown and environmentalists are to blame for diverting water into the Pacific Ocean instead of using it to fight the fires that have already devastated more than 5 million acres so far this year. Hmm. As with so many of Trump's comments, it's too simple to call this a lie, although it will almost certainly count as around number 4,300, according to the Washington Post tabulation, or around number 2,000, according to the stricter standard of the Toronto Star's Daniel Dale. The Post and the Star agree that the rate of Trump's lies has been accelerating lately, which may be why they're both a little backlogged with their lists. But as I say, this isn't just a lie. It's one of those Trump concepts that lives at a three-way intersection of lying, conspiracy mongering, and the politics of hate. In that sense, it echoes his comments about vaccines causing autism or his comments about climate change being a hoax. I get why Trump's doing this. He has zero sympathy for Californians who didn't vote for him. And you can see how he's trying to take the side of farmers who want bigger water allocations in California. Some version of this claim goes back to the campaign, when Trump said that California didn't really have a drought at all. It was just rationing water to punish farmers. These days, however, the president isn't even making sense. California isn't short on water to fight the fires. You mainly fight fires in other ways than spraying water. And it doesn't divert water into the Pacific Ocean. It diverts zillions of gallons that would otherwise flow into the ocean for agriculture, municipal water supplies, and so forth. You could call this the outdoor version of the Reichstag fire. If something's burning, blame the Democrats for lighting it, and then use it to take what you want. On today's show, were Russian hacking and disinformation acts of cyber war And are we under attack again? I'll speak to cybersecurity specialist Clint Watts right after we do the tweets. They asked my daughter, Ivanka, whether or not the media is the enemy of the people. She correctly said no. It's the fake news, which is a large percentage of the media, that is the enemy of the people. The fake news hates me saying that they are the enemy of the people only because they know it's true. I am providing a great service by explaining this to the American people. They purposely cause great division and distrust. They can also cause war. They are very dangerous and sick. Fake news reporting a complete fabrication that I am concerned about the meeting my wonderful son Donald had at Trump Tower. 
this was a meeting to get information on an opponent totally legal and done all the time in politics. And it went nowhere. I did not know about it. Why aren't Mueller and the 17 angry Democrats looking at the meetings concerning the fake dossier and all of the lying that went on in the FBI and DOJ. This is the most one-sided witch hunt in the history of our country. Fortunately, the facts are all coming out and fast. Joining me in the studio is Clint Watts. He's a cybersecurity expert, and he has a recent book out called Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, and Fake News. Clint, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me today. So I've really wanted to talk to somebody about cyber war and cybersecurity yeah. and really what it, what it all means. You know, I think uh, during the campaign, we started to hear a lot of government officials and people who'd been government officials refer in this very jargony way to cyber as a, as a military category. And I always want to say, well, cyber what? Right. You know, because it's, it's just there's, there's so much vagueness and lack of clarity. I guess to start out, in 2016, what happened to, to us with the Russians in the election? Was that an, a cyber attack? Was it hacking? Was it an act of cyber war? How do you categorize these things? Right. So cyber as a term means nothing, really. Thank Every, you. Everything connected <laughs> to the internet it could be called cyber. Right. And uh, after I left the FBI, I went and worked for one of my old bosses, and we did a cybersecurity fusion center. And we were, I was helping work with that. And it was the convergence of like technical network connections with information security, which is, you know, how do you keep people safe on the systems? And then there's this whole other layer, which we saw in 2016, which you could see coming, which was influence, which people will say, oh, that's a cyber attack. And like, well, we used to be able to do it with the newspaper, you know, a print newspaper if we wanted to. We could do that part. You know, it changes with the technology. But it's a version of, of propaganda or right. disinformation. It was, it was an attempt to sow false information for political impact. And you can do it faster and more efficiently with our new information environment, the cyber environment, whereas it used to take decades or even, you know, multiple decades to like actually influence people. Now you can do that in a year or two. And so cyber war, the the strange thing is it's always been when would we consider something an act of cyber war? So the characterization that I like is imagine it's the 1980s. Uh, Russians have come into the United States, some spies. They broke into Colin Powell's house. They broke into his safe. They took all of his files. And then they went back to Russia and printed them in newspapers. We would probably be at war. Like, we, that would be an act of war. He was chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He's the former secretary of state. That just happened, right? So they did that. They hit him and General Breedlove, former NATO commander, along with Clinton and the DNC and all these other people. And we literally didn't do much at all. We didn't do anything. You know, it's only now that we're sort of getting around to this. And so we treat everything in the internet space very, very differently. Another example is North Korea. North Korea did a massive cyber attack on an American the Sony, company, Sony Pictures. So that is, wouldn't it be an attack, you know, on a, a company if they launched a missile or they came in and destroyed or burned all the files, didn't kill any people? Would that be an attack? So we we have a characterization problem. No one really knows what it means when they say cyber war or cyber attack. 
Uh, and the idea around warfare is that people are getting killed. There's violence. That's sort of how we think about it. Right. Right now, what I'm worried about is what if a population in the United States has been manipulated through social media influence, uh, you know, nefarious influence from afar, and they conduct an attack on behalf of unwittingly on the behalf of a foreign agent, would that be an act of war? It is not clear at this point, whether it's Stuxnet, Sony, 2016, what cyber war means. What was interesting last week was the new NSA director, General Nakasone, said, I've been given approval uh, and we have secret operations we can launch for offensive, essentially, cyber attacks. And I know the immediate question amongst everybody in the cyber was, what does that mean? You know, it, like you had, you had mentioned before we started, does that mean setting up the conditions that you could take out a power grid? Or does that mean taking out a power grid? Or does that mean... Maybe, you would be allowed to take out a power grid in certain circumstances. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know what those triggers are. Like, it's not clear to me, uh, having worked in and out of government, I, I don't think the United States really has a good handle on it. And that was my big fear about that statement. Last do you week. think that was it did represent a change, that there was something we weren't allowed to do in terms of cyber warfare that, that Nakasone is saying that, that we are now allowed to do? Based on statements? Yeah. Yes. That was the most aggressive I've ever heard publicly, a U.S. official when dealing with cyber coming out and saying, we are essentially prepared to, or we may do, uh, offensive cyber. What would you guess it means? Um, <laughs> in the Trump administration, I have no <laughs> idea because you never know what anything really means. And the the most fearful thing I had coming out of that press conference on Thursday was normally the president of the United States would lead a press conference like that. And then the national security advisor would say, this is our grand strategy. And it wouldn't be the principals that are executing the strategy, each individually just saying, this is what my agency is doing. That, they would kind of do that later. You know, they would have like, here's my plan or here's the integrated plan. Instead, it was just like each of the principals coming up and saying, well, here's what my agency does and this is what we're going to do. And here's what, well, the problem with that is let's talk about offensive cyber. Let's say we launched a cyber attack against Russia or whoever. It doesn't matter the state. The likely counterattack would be against the private sector. You know, like why it, it's not military on military, like it could be a bank or it could be a power grid. It could be individual citizens, you know, that they just want to knock out of the system. And so I'm not confident after hearing that briefing that day that we wouldn't launch a cyber attack and then, oh, suddenly you or I are walking down the street. And we can't use our cell phones. You know, it's very strange to have this sort of disjointed, haphazard series of press conferences all the time without any real idea what the strategy is, what the plan is. Nuclear power, nuclear uh, strategy evolved around the idea of deterrence. Right. Right. Cyber warfare, cyber attacks have evolved in almost the opposite way. It's kind of experimenting which, with what you can do, you right. know, Stuxnet, this and that. And there is, there is no, it doesn't seem to be any precedent or any idea that we need to have a theory of deterrence in place so that we don't attack each other. Yeah. Well, I, I think they were moving that way during the Obama administration. You started to see they were slow. Uh, and I was very hopeful, actually. It's funny, when the Trump administration started, there were two people that were principally put in to handle that. Uh, Rob Joyce was the guy who was going to be the coordinator basically for cyber in the White House. He was known as the best guy. He was the head of offensive cyber, essentially, for the United States, which we never deployed or, you know, however you might look at it, but he was the smartest of them. And then Tom Bossert, who was given that position in national security staff, they're both gone. So 
when the Trump administration came in, one of the bright spots that some people in my field talked about was at least we have two really pretty competent and experienced people on the cyber front who can maybe do these multilateral negotiations where we bring our NATO allies and other partners together to figure out is an attack on one an attack on all or what would be the triggers? Can we maybe infiltrate and do espionage but not necessarily do a provocation? And I think that was part of the Obama administration's miss in 2016 was they were like, oh, this is just Russia doing espionage. They didn't understand, no, we're hacking that information because we're going to drive and influence your election next year. Right. I mean, Obama didn't want to escalate. He didn't want to call the 2016 an attack an act of war, right. which it arguably was because of what that would have implied. If you're if it's an act of war, you've been attacked and you have to retaliate. Now, he did say there was retaliation, but he wanted to, he wanted to mute it down a little bit. Trump's not using that language for a very different reason, which is that he doesn't acknowledge fully that it took place right. he's been go, goes back and forth depending on his mood and the moment about that um, but also he doesn't he doesn't fundamentally want to acknowledge that we were attacked right and this has left us in a very precarious position i'll give you an example i think it was senator shelby uh, had gone to moscow with a group of gop senators on for the july and you started hearing them repeat kind of president trump's words which are also kind of moscow's words about everybody does this uh, it's not a big deal but imagine you're NATO and the EU and you're being beaten up by Trump and you just helped maybe in the defense of cyber, you know, and during the Obama era. You're listening to this. Those sorts of statements invite other people to say, well, maybe I should start influencing the U.S. public on social media. Maybe I should uh, hack into someone's financial records around the world and dump them. It's, it's a very, you know, precarious, like you said, experimental uh, transactional sort of system where everyone's cyber defenses could ultimately be vulnerable because if we say everybody does it, then everybody will start to do it. What about other Western European countries? Does France do hacking that we don't do? Are there are there are there European powers that have a different idea of what's acceptable in terms of either of information warfare or I guess laying the groundwork defensive or offensive for for cyber attacks? It's fascinating to look at the transition from terrorism to now this nation state phenomenon. So information warfare, as I came into it, was through the counterterrorism lens, which was everybody hates terrorists. So it's easy to get on board with hacking, you know, counterhacking, hacking or information warfare to stop terrorists from being recruited. So there are other countries out there that do have very good capabilities. Probably the best might be Israel, for example. They have very good um, cyber forces. And they built the Stuxnet uh, virus that was used to, to, right. to bring down Iran. The way I understand uh, it, yeah. they were intimately involved with that. They they are known to be the most sophisticated. And in fact, a lot of the good cybersecurity businesses that are out there now are veterans of their intelligence and military services. Russia has a very effective, as we know, force. China does, but it's a little bit different. You know, it's more about mass and and scale. And then the European countries do. So the UK is known for being very competent uh, technically, and they sort of showed themselves a couple times, and they did the famous uh, changing the recipe, putting a cupcake recipe up on one of the Al-Qaeda sort of things. But no one's really doing the sort of attacks that you see coming out of Russia with the intent of stealing information and, and driving influence, or what you see in China, which is more focused around intellectual property theft or 
or, or sort of controlling things. Russia has been the most aggressive. You saw it in Georgia you know, when they fought the war with Georgia, also in Ukraine. That's been sort of the test ground for a lot of the cyber attacks and cyber stuff. And so I would think Ukraine is actually the place where we should start to look at case studies of, okay, what will we tolerate? What won't we tolerate? And how about the kinds of attacks that that seem like more conventional warfare, say an attack on the uh, electrical grid or transportation infrastructure? Right. I mean, say you run an electrical utility right now. What are you being told to do by the government? And what are the top concerns in terms of what foreign powers are trying to do what, either in terms of laying the groundwork for a, an attack in the future, first strike or retaliatory, retaliatory or um, actual, actually attacking? Right. I mean, are you defending against actual attacks that are not just there for espionage or laying groundwork, but are actually trying to do harm to your capabilities right now? That's what it's hard to tell. So there's kind of three levels. One is the reconnaissance phase, which is there, you'll hear them talk about scanning, where people, their systems are being scanned, which means they're sending out some sort of software or some sort of malware to go and sort of scan your system to see where you're vulnerable at. The next is gaining entry. And maybe that's where you stop, meaning uh, I've gained access into your systems, which I then have a lever or a control a virus, some sort of malware in your systems, where when I command it to, I can initiated attack. Then the third part is actually either theft and retrieval. That's IP associated, which is this espionage we hear a lot about. And that's normally thought of as China, but it's everyone really participating in that. And then the more aggressive attacking, like denial of service. Can I shut off your water, power, electricity, that sort of thing? Can I take down a voting machine on election day? Can I change the voter rolls or change the integrity of it? And that is sort of seen as like the ultimate level. So in terms of uh, how it's it's looked, it's kind of, can I compromise? That may not be that you know severe. Can I deny you availability to your systems? That could be a lot worse, but then there's the two parts. Can integrity, can I change the integrity of your system? That's pretty sophisticated and damaging or destroy it. And that's that Sony, you know, picture sort of attack that we saw. Yeah. And what do you think the Russians are planning for for 2018? Forget 2020 for a minute, but for these, the midterm elections, what what level, both on the the information warfare side and on the actual potential for interference with voting systems. Yeah, I think from the beginning, the, the if you look back to 2016, there was the overt sort of, I call it overt now, covert overt uh, influencing around certain candidates, you know, pro-Trump, anti-Clinton, Bernie Sanders got a raw deal, Jill Stein, you still got to show up. But their second wave of information was coordinated with the second wave of hackings, which was against voter databases primarily, which was to create the impression that maybe the votes didn't count and then influence around that because ultimately it's to destroy democracy. Citizen confidence in democracy. Did my vote really count? Did the person who win really win? They could do that again in 2018, but there's not that much for them to gain. Uh, and, and it could push uh, President Trump now, who's been able to sort of keep them out of a lot of hot water in many ways, to force his hand, essentially. And, and we've seen this. I also tell people that Russia is very smart and they think strategically. So what do they want? We've seen them do some hacking. It looks like very limited. And those hacks were in 2017. That's a consistent pattern. The year before an election is when you start hacking. That way you've got the stolen information. You can dump it in election year. You saw them do some Facebook, Instagram pages, but it's light. You know, the stuff that was taken down last week, it's infiltration on social issues, race issues, those sorts of things. 
but it's not that significant. And I've not seen the, the same sort of influence that you've seen before. Mostly what they're doing now is audience sustainment and really I think the next level, which is overt association and building alliances with people inside the United States. We saw this Steven Seagal, you know, appointed as ambassador and people take that as a joke. I don't actually. If you look who Trump supporters are, mm. what do they like? Hand-to-hand combat, guns, action stars. He was a reality TV show star in Indiana. You're starting to see groups in the United States wear shirts that prominently show Russia or Russian phrases. So the idea, I think, for the Kremlin in 2018 is to stay there and sustain the audience they got, but also to build relationships and strengthen those relationships, uh, moving to the next step. 2020 is when I would expect them to really come back in in a big way if they thought there was something very much to gain. Uh, The one issue that's left out there for them is sanctions relief. If they thought there was a way to get sanctions relief through influencer hacking, they might do that. I I saw that trip on 4th of July of the senators as a way. You heard Senator Johnson come back and Mm. say, Sanctions aren't working. I think they'd only been in effect a few, <laughs> like two months, three months, some of them. But the idea was very much, okay, let's engender ourselves to these people and convince them to to give us more of what we want. And so I am expecting more of that. What I fear in 2018 is everybody copying the playbook, this QAnon stuff that's been going around. That's American-made. Uh, you know, it's a conspiracy theory. I expect more of this American-generated user content, uh, conspiracies coming out of political or social groups. That's what gets me the most concerned about 2018, I think. But beyond all of that, beyond even uh, creating, destroying confidence in democracy and electoral systems, which was, you know, in some ways the Trump loses strategy, say, you know, question question the election. There is actually hacking electoral systems and actually trying to steal an election in a yep. conventional sense of, of faking votes. And with 2018, they certainly have the motivation and the interest to do that. I mean, these are you know state electoral systems, which are not, not so secure, where a small number of votes and a small number of races can, could determine control of Congress, which from the point of view of Russian interests, arguably matters a very great deal in terms of whether the you know Trump presidency continues even. Sure. Do you expect to see them or are there signs that they might be moving beyond a level which to which they went in 2016 and actually trying to interfere in the voting tabulations in elections? I haven't seen it. I actually would be not surprised. I mean, I think they they could do it if they chose to, you know, and and if they want to. I'm just trying to always think about what's the calculus for them. If they go and hit a voting machine on Election Day after we've been through all of this, and even though we've been kind of on our heels the entire time, this is going to force the president to have to do something. You know, it puts him in a position, even with all of his denial so far, you saw that press conference last week. The institutions are moving around him, basically, at this point, you know, trying to do defense, foreign influence task force at the FBI, the Senate. I think that Helsinki summit really turned some heads even on the Republican side. And you see like Lindsey Graham, you know, who's taking him. He's talking about mega sanctions this week. So they could do it. But that really forces the question then of, okay, is this are we in a cyber war with Russia? 
What I'm also worried about is attribution. Although you're you're assuming there, Clint, first of all, that it's traceable, that they get caught, right. the evidence is clear. That's where I was kind of going to go with it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to get another year of Trump saying, oh, well, maybe it was a fat guy sitting on his couch, and we don't really know, right. and maybe it was them. But, you know, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily expect either real retaliation or that the Republicans would break ranks with Trump over that because nothing's really caused them to do it yet. Yeah, the attribution issue is also a challenge because it could not be Russia. You know, if I were a foreign nation right now and I wanted to stir something up in the United States, I would launch a, an attack on the electoral systems and make it look like Russia. You know, like that's, you can do that. And the attribution, we would figure it out. But as we've seen with the Mueller indictment, it takes years sometimes to figure that stuff out. You can't just do it immediately. And so I think we're in a tough spot because we haven't really gotten our defenses up to snuff. We haven't solved the electoral system question at all. We still, I think, have five states that can't be audited or there's no paper ballot backup. So we have no real guarantee. That could ensure some of this doesn't work. And we've just been slow. You know, we're not, we're not really on board and we're not working as a team, you know, as a country, which is very, very strange. And so I do agree with you. I'm just not convinced that for the Kremlin, the costs are worth uh, the the intended benefits that they think they can get, unless they really do think that President Trump is a pushover and they can do whatever they want. That's uh, that's what I don't know. And you think that applies to 2020 as well? That is information warfare, sure, you know, all sorts of messing with us, but don't actually try to steal the election. I don't know. I think it will depend on how President Trump goes in the next year and a half, whether they get sanctions relief. The cost, you know, they may have something they want in 2020. They may want President Trump still in office no matter what. Yeah. And it will be hard for President Trump to turn, you know, to the to America and say, hey, I'm really going to put my foot down now. No election interference. That's not going to happen. I can't imagine it. So if they had a challenger that was a very anti-Russia challenger, Democrat or Republican, you know, if there's a Republican primary challenger or a Democrat, I would expect them to step it back up uh, pretty significantly. This is the kind of phrase I thought would never come out of my mouth. But what would a president who wanted to defend America do? Today, in yeah. terms of that, well, the first thing would have been the election systems. That could have been solved in the first six months. This sort of going and asking states, hey, would you improve your system? No. How about this? How about I will cut off all federal funding for something else until your election systems are up to snuff and we can make sure that the votes count? You could do that as president. The, the kind of thing they've done, say, with teenage drinking. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> I mean, we have lots of examples, yeah. you know, between the president using his authority to sort of push down onto states. The second thing would be develop the cyber uh, plan that you're talking about, which is what is a trigger? I've, I ask this all the time and have asked it before. I actually asked officials in Aspen last year. OK, I'm a U.S. citizen. I've been hit with Russian cyber attacks. Can I launch my own cyber attack back if I know who it is? And they were all kind of like, no, that would be breaking the law. And I said, so I, I can be hit and you'll allow it. They were like, well, we would investigate it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. How many hundreds or thousands of Americans have gotten hit, you know, since this election campaign? So we have not figured that out. We've not figured out the hack back laws and we've not figured out what is our trigger to do offensive cyber. At least I don't. Maybe they have in the last couple of weeks. That would be a second thing. The third thing would be how to deal uh, with influence. And to deal with influence, we have to have a basis of fact and fiction. We, 
part right now the Russians don't need to make fake news because we are putting out so much distorted information from the government, from the head of the government. They can just reuse it. So I hear people saying that, well, I looked at, you know, RT and Spending News and what they said was true. And I was like, the story was true, but what they were quoting was the president saying something that's false. I mean, right. I, mean I mean, so like they don't really have to do anything at this point. They've got plenty of ammunition to use. How about the defenses at the big social media platform? So particularly Facebook in 2016 and through the days after the election was in total denial yeah. about whether this happened. But in retrospect, it's clearer and clearer that they were essentially Facebook and also YouTube I, in particular, I, w- I would say, Twitter to some extent, we're saying to the Russians, um, come hijack us. We've left the keys in the plane. Yeah. It's gonna, we're going to make it really, really easy for you. Right? Is it going to be that easy next time? Have they erected, I mean, we've seen Facebook, you know, out closing some accounts, which might be Russian. You know, they're taking at least some symbolic action. But do you think Facebook is going to be as easy to hijack in the next election as it was in the last one? No, I don't think so. And it's part partly the public. I mean, the, the public is so much more aware now. When I talked about this stuff in 2014, the first time I was talking to people, 15, when I talked to people, they were in complete denial. The public is more aware of it now. The fringes are always going to go for it because it's, you know, confirmation bias and things like that. But there's been disengagement from their platforms, which we've seen with their market share going down so much, you know, in their share drop. The other thing is, I think some social media companies have done a, a really good job. Facebook has put a lot of resources into it. They've made a lot of platform changes. I do feel like they're detecting things uh, and shutting them down. It may not be perfect, at least not yet, but they're going to get better, kind of like with spam. You know, when we were fighting spam, it took years for the companies to get on it. But the other companies I worry about uh, on the fringes, as we saw with this QAnon sort of nonsense, 4chan, 8chan, these anonymous platforms, again, is a great place to sow conspiracy. Reddit has done, I think, a pretty good job. I like how they sort of announced their rollout and what they found. And Twitter has been slow, always been slow, going back whether it was terrorist or, or the Kremlin. But they have made significant advances twice, you know, in recent months. One, the sort of bot shutting down they're getting there and the community guidelines, which is the sort of trolling system where your content gets downgraded if you're in a sort of abusive conversations all the time. So I think it will be much harder to do moving forward, but not impossible. Where I'm more worried about is in places other than America, meaning the third world. Uh, We've seen it, Myanmar, Cambodia, these countries where the social media companies don't necessarily have a lot of language skills, can't necessarily pick up on the effect it's having, don't have as big of a physical presence in those countries. This can be devastating. Uh, And these places you're talking about whipping up genocides. You're not talking about about influence and election. And the governments are on are really on the other side. In a lot of cases, they're they're supporting yes. the the disinformation that is producing these ghastly scenes of mob violence. And whether it's in yeah. Burma with the uh, Rohingya or, or in India where this has been happening, and WhatsApp or any yeah. of these other places, it, it is. It, you know, it, it can be used both ways, internal suppression of populations by authoritarians or externally foreign, you know, manipulation. We've been really concentrating on foreign manipulation, but I worry a, about those countries where 
the social media companies are also trying to maintain market share. And the government oftentimes controls how much they're able to do inside their country. So this allows them to really push or pull those levers, I think, with the social media companies such that they can use this for their own purposes. I mean, the governments are also their custom, the biggest customers in those countries, in the Philippines or Cambodia, the leaders of those countries and their political parties are spending millions and millions of dollars. They're the biggest Facebook advertisers, creating the propaganda themselves. Yeah, even in our own country. I mean, President Trump is still one of the biggest ad spenders, I believe, on Facebook, you know, even today, or at least his campaign is, you know, whatever the apparatus is. So it's not going away. I just think it will be tougher to move the audience in the way that the Kremlin was able to help uh, in 2016, because people are a little bit more suspicious. Everyone thinks they see a bot all the time, whether it's a bot or not, you know, oftentimes they don't know. They are anxious about it. There's been some disengagement from the platform. And uh, Facebook's also taken sort of the news feed uh, and the newsiness out of uh, most people's Facebook feeds. I, I like to say 2016, you know, Facebook was where you went to where your friends came to yell at you about the election. And in 2018, it's where let's go back to cats and kids. You know, they're trying to refocus around that sort of stuff. So, Clint, as a last question for you, what can individuals, listeners to this show, do both to protect themselves effectively, but also to make sure they're not a party to the the, abetting, unconsciously abetting cyber attacks or information war from from Russia or anywhere else? Are there kind of basic hygiene practices that you right. advise? Yeah. On the technical side, uh, one thing to always do is use antivirus. A lot of people think they have Macs. They shouldn't worry about it. But Sophos uh, offers a free Mac antivirus. Um, the other thing to do is always have two-factor authentication on your social media accounts. I think that's a, a basic thing to do that helps protect you. And people are moving in that direction. On the influence side, I think it's important never share an article that you haven't read. You know, as a general principle, it's good. You, when, you've just violated the nature of all social media. But yes, shared but not read is the leading category of information <laughs> right. on the Internet. So, which, which slows down <laughs> sharing, which is good, but also uh, helps people understand what they're sharing. I should tell you there's a, there's a digital startup that I really like called Really Reddit. And it's a platform where you can only share an article if, you're, if, you if, if you've actually read it all. <laughs> That's great. Isn't that a great idea? That's a great idea. Yeah. I, I should go check them out. I, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for them. I'll endorse them. Uh, the other thing is when you're, you're confused about news sources, the human body was not meant to evaluate this many news sources. And I want to do nutrition labels for information sources and whatnot. But even as an individual user, if you look at a news source and you can't pin down where that news source is physically located, a physical address where they say, this is where we produce content from, or this is where the company is based, then it's probably not a news source you need to be consuming. That was one of the things that was interesting watching in, in the buildup of the election. People were sharing news sources. And if you ask them, be like, well, where is, where is that news source? They'd be like, you know, I don't know. I, I've never really thought about that. Well, that's Although some of it was like the, I forget, but the Denver Gazette. I mean, sure. they were they were spoofing the names of of real publications. Right. That, you know, they just they 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 were plausible and they did have places. They just weren't real. And that was some of the Twitter accounts, like yeah. Real News New York City, that yeah. sort of thing. But say, okay, who is the actual human operator behind the social media account, or if it's a news information outlet, where is it actually located? Can you find the company, the corporate address, whatever it might be? It'll help you get to the bottom. Oftentimes, very quickly, a lot of these pop-up information sources that start, to, start distributing stuff very quickly. Well, that sounds like a lot of good advice. 
Um, I've been speaking to Clint Watts. His new book is Messing with the Enemy. Clint, thanks for joining thanks me on the show. Me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Are you a member of Slate Plus? You can listen to our show without ads. That's just one of the many benefits of being a member. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to join. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.